0: Ah, uh, oh.
1: starts with an H. This is embarrassing. Um, yeah. Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen.
0: And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you all for tuning back in to another episode. Another great play today. We're returning to a playwright that we have done before once again. That's right.
1: This week we're coming back to one of the real great working playwrights around right now. Susan Laurie Parks, incredible. If you know her, you might know her from 365 Days, 365 Plays, or the play that we've previously talked about, Top Dog, Underdog.
0: Yeah, Top Dog, Younger Dog was like, I don't know, was that like second season that we did that one? It's been a little it's been while been a now. little
1: while. I have very fond memories of the play. And then after our episode, I re-encountered it because a mutual friend of ours was doing a set design for that show. And so oh, I reread yeah, the play yeah. for conversations with her. And it's just great to come back to it, especially after our episode and having that great conversation. And it's great to come back to Susan Laurie Parks, who, who when I am asked, who are some of your favorite playwrights? Susan Laurie Parks is one of the playwrights that I name. I also name Paula Vogel and Mary Zimmerman. But Susan Lori Parks is in that list for sure. And... The play that we are going to talk about today is widely, not universally, but widely known. It's a newer play and more widely known as one of the best plays in her library. I had not encountered it before coming to it for this episode. And I have got to say, I agree with that point of view. (laughs) This is an incredible play.
0: Yeah, it's a phenomenal play. Today we're going to be talking about Father Comes Home from the Wars, which is a play in three parts, written in kind of three one-act plays sort of or at least an act that stands alone, um but meant to be produced together.
1: Right. And part uh, there's almost so much to talk about and we're not we're not to the conversation <laughs> yet, but before that in the pre-conversation conversation, this play hits so many places for me. It hits really poetic Beautiful writing. It hits incredibly strong imagery in the play text, which is hugely important to me. And it hits this button that I have of adaption. I am a huge, huge lover of adapted works. I love to see stories told and retold as a playwright in the limited playwriting I do. It's often adaptive works or true stories that I adapt into plays. So uh, adaptive work is something that I just love. And this is, in it's sort of loosest form, adaptive work.
0: It is. yeah, it's 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 uh, got a lot of names that will ring a bell as we uh, get to the synopsis. So yeah, 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 I agree that this this like the the, the work that she does to uh, bring together a whole bunch of areas of theater is just so fun to watch all meld and weave their way into this beautiful story. Um, before we get uh, let, let's let's leave the pre conversation and before we get to the conversation conversation. If you can't I, tell, he's cutting
1: me off because I could just go. Just, I could start this conversation now. I'm so ready, and I'm we're not like, there yet. We've got the we've got stuff to do before right, we right. get to the conversation. So this is the Jacob time to move on portion of just the pre conversation.
0: Throw, throw a bookend at you real quick. Um, <laughs> But uh, before we get into the conversation, we do want to take a second and thank our Patreons over at noscript.com slash nope, (laughs) our patrons over at patreon.com slash no script podcast. Thank you to everyone who's headed over there to become patrons of the show. Uh, As you all know, we love doing the show. We love having these conversations with each other and with all of you out there in podcast land. And uh, uh, though it's a labor of love for us, it's not a free labor of love. There are some costs associated with making the podcast, uh, hosting fees, uh, buying the scripts that we can't find at our local library and just the considerable amount of time invested in it. So, if you are enjoying NoScript podcast, if you want to be a part of being sure that it can, we continue being able to have these conversations about theater's best scripts head on over to patreon.com slash podcast where you'll find a bunch of different tiers of patronship at the lowest level is just $1 and you get access to patron-only posts and a bunch of other fun stuff over there. There's a number of tiers of membership and even at that $1 amount, you help out the show a lot. So thank you to everyone who's gone over to patreon.com slash podcast, and we will see you over there.
1: Thank you all. And now back to the script. Here we go. But before the script, the playwright, Susan Lori Parks, I'm sure we mentioned this in the Top Dog Underdog episode, but she is the first African American woman to be awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Incredible achievement on her part. In two- by 2002, just way too late for that to have been the first African American woman to receive a Pulitzer Prize for Drama. The drama should have caught up way before that, of course, but. It was Susan Laurie Parks. It was 2002, so credit to her for that accomplishment. She was she was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize for Drama for this play, Father Comes Home from the Wars, in 2015. Now, the play that won in 2015 is a play by a playwright I love, Stephen Adley-Girgis, incredible playwright. We've talked about him a couple times. I think I always say he's got the best eye for titling plays of <laughs> any other playwright. Awesome. I love his plays. He won that. That year for between Riverside and Crazy. It's not really our place in this podcast to pass judgment. We like to analyze, <laughs> to uh, to celebrate. That's sort of the mission statement: uh, to have good conversations about great scripts. I gotta be honest though. I read this play, and then I read Between Riverside and Crazy, and I cannot fathom the Pulitzer Prize Committee that picked Between Riverside and Crazy over this play. <laughs> That just seems like a miscarriage of theatrical justice. Right. And, Girgis, no offense to you, man. If you're out there listening, you're an incredible playwright. You deserve a Pulitzer Prize for drama. I'm not trying to take that away from you. All I'm saying is, I think that "Father Comes Home from the War" is a is a work of seminal achievement. I mean, it is it is a hmm. singular play. And. To have not won that year and to, to lose to Between Riverside and Crazy, which is personally not one of my favorite Stephen Adler Girgis scripts. Okay, we've moved past it. I'm done.
0: That's all not I past need. it yet, but yeah. it's out there now. That's all I need to say.
1: Uh, if Stephen Adler Girgis wants to come after me, dude, all I'm going to do is just tell you how much I love you and tell you about some of the other scripts of yours that, that I really, really love. Um, Father Comes Home from the War was first produced at the Public Theater. In 2014, it went on to play at the American Repertory Theater and then all over the world. And uh, it played at the Goodman Theater, which is a theater a lot of people recognize, in 2018. It won the 2015 Edward M. Kennedy Prize for Theatrical Work, 2015 Obie Award for Playwriting. It was a nominee for the 2015 Lucille Lortel Award for Outstanding Play. As I've mentioned, a finalist for the 2015 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. So it's only about six years old now a relatively new play in the scope of things. So it, it's been playing at regional houses since then, in San Diego, in Los Angeles. Uh, it, it was started off Broadway in New York. It's been in Chicago. So at least an American sweep has, has certainly been had by this play and, and well-deserved. Uh, as you look at production photos of this play online, do yourself a favor and just Google them. They are so diverse. The various productions of this play are so diverse in terms of how the production team has imagined the world of the show um, that it it just warms my heart. I just love to see the (laughs) incredible creativity, uh, especially approaching such a wonderful script like this.
0: Well, yeah, I suppose the, the one of the beauties of this play is that you can you could do it on a park bench if you needed to, um, or you could do it in an incredibly uh, well-designed and full production. There's just the the, the text itself is so rich that, that what you put it on only enhances that text.
1: Yeah, it fits uh, in an amphitheater. It fits in a big Broadway house. It fits in your little coffee shop. It's, it's really incredible in how moldable and morphable it is.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, before we get into the the, the main uh, part of our conversation about the play, uh, we do want to synopsize it for you real quick. This is actually a fairly easy play to synopsize in broad strokes, and I'm going to stay pretty broad at the beginning, and then we'll delve into specifics as we go. Um, as I mentioned before, the play is delivered in three parts, or three acts— Um, the first part introduces us to a chorus of characters, um, in the, in the, uh, the character, uh, layout or the, the cast list, they are called the chorus of less than desirable slaves. Um, they are leader, second, third, and fourth are their names and they serve as, as the chorus for, for, uh, the first part. We are introduced to another of, uh, a number of other characters as well. We are introduced to the oldest old man.
1: What a great character name. It's, it's a little <laughs> Rulian, is it not? Like it has that uh-huh. kind of just wildness to the character name. It's awesome.
0: Right. Like mythological almost. Um, we have uh, Penny and Homer and Hero. Now, uh, Hero is, is in some ways, our hero, or at least uh, the, the character who we follow for a good chunk of the play, and for part one, uh, everyone is kind of wrapped up in Hero's choice, and there's a choice, or at least uh, the, the promise of a choice that is being made in part one. Uh, these are all slaves on a particular uh, plot of land to uh, a family in Texas. Um, In uh, far, far west Texas, or something like that, Um, and and the the colonel or the 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 master is a a colonel in the Confederate Army. He's about to go to war, and he's asked Hero if he he's at least told him that he will give him the choice whether he comes or not. Um, We never learn
1: how honest Hero's choice in the matter actually was. Right, It, it is a matter of some skepticism. Uh, whether he truly has a choice or not, but at face value, he's been given the choice to go fight for the South in the Civil War or not.
0: mm Hmm. Yeah. And and so the rest of uh, this this group of folks is is. Uh, Betting on whether he will go or not, especially the chorus is is betting their personal belongings or trying to figure out whether he'll go or whether he'll stay. And uh, the big uh, swing in that in in that choice is the oldest old man and Penny. The oldest old man is kind of a father figure, to hero, not uh, a blood father, but nonetheless uh, he's sort of raised him ever since he came to uh, this this part of Texas. Um, and then uh, Penny, who is his. Fiance, wife, very close companion, um not quite wife, but uh yeah, but she they're she calls lovers. herself something like
1: his basically wife or yeah. his more or less wife.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the oldest old man encourages him to go to war. Very uh, kind of a little bit stereotypical. This this like go to war, make your fortune, be the brave man, go to war. Um, and Penny is encouraging him to stay behind. And uh, so Hero enters into the scene. He's he's dealing whether or not whether he should go. And we learn a lot about his past. We uh, learn about his relationship with Homer, who comes on a little later, who is another uh, slave on on this uh, to 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 the to the current. And uh, we learn uh, throughout throughout the course of part one that Homer has tried to run away before he was caught. His foot was cut off. In fact, I believe if I'm reading it correctly, Hero cut his foot off at, at the threat to his life. Um, and we also learn by the end of the scene that it was in fact Hero who gave him up. That's a pretty crucial revelation in the first part. That hero gave him up to the master, who then went out and caught him and forced hero to cut off his foot. Notably, this is the first time that the colonel, the master, offered hero his freedom in exchange for something and lied about it. He never gave hero his freedom for both for uh, giving him, uh, telling him where Homer went, and for cutting off Homer's foot. At the end of the scene, hero goes decides to go with the colonel.
1: And he, he does so shamefacedly, because the fact that he gave Homer away in Homer's attempt to escape has been a secret. This is a revelation moment, right, in terms of dramatic mm-hmm. structure. And it's revealed this long-standing secret, and that the guilt of that and the communal shaming of him for that, that is ultimately what makes his decision for him to choose right. to, yes, go to war, fighting for the South.
0: Right, right. Possibly the only other, the only other thing that I'll throw in at the beginning here, just a note from the first chapter, is uh, Hero's dog Oddsy is missing. He's a lucky dog. Um, and he's always they always they all say he's always been Hero's luck, and he's not around. So that's a huge part of the decision making process too. The dog is missing. Um, that that'll become important in part three. Trust me. Um, part two. Uh, months later. Uh, an amount of time later, time has passed. Um, we we are uh, we hit the scene with the colonel. A uh, hero and Smith, who is a captive Union soldier. Um, we learn that during a recent battle, the colonel was uh, dehorsed. He fell off of his horse and uh, managed to fight his way to the outside of this uh, battle, uh, capture this uh, Union soldier, and is who he be- uh, who is a captain or at least wearing a captain's uniform. And he believes that he's able to when he brings him back, he'll be commended and rewarded. So uh, what happens in this in this scene is this. Uh, this, this really kind of complex relationship between these three characters as they negotiate, uh, uh, the Smith, the union, the captive union soldiers, um, imprisonment. He, there's, there's a cage that they move around. He's sometimes in it, sometimes out of it. Notably the union captain is, uh, has a, has a, uh, shot through his leg. So his ability to run away is pretty low. So there's, there's some negotiation there. Um, we spend uh, a good amount of time kind of listening to the colonel and the colonel's rationale for uh, for uh, his worldviews, but then also having some uh, pushback from the Union soldier as well. Through the course of the scene, we discover that the captain is the captain uh, of the 1st Kansas Colored Infantry. Um, and, and that's, that's another part of the colonel in his conversation. And then further on into the scene, spoiler we discover, alert, spoiler, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, <laughs> major
1: spoiler. We've already spoiled something. This is like a major,
0: major spoiler. <laughs> yeah. Major spoiler. Um, he is in fact a, a private in the first Kansas colored infantry and is an African American. Um, though he does not present as one. He seems to be fairly light-skinned um, and able to pass as a northerner. Um, so uh, the scene continues. Uh, the colonel runs off. The the, the the pushing of the scene happens because uh, there's the, the Union and the rebels are clashing about 10 miles away. The battle's getting closer, the whole scene. Beautiful uh, timer on the scene is this onset of cannons coming on closer, closer, and closer. Eventually, the colonel runs off to see where the battle is. And uh, Hero and Smith have an interaction back and forth where that that crucial revelation comes out. The colonel runs back. He's like, okay, the army's clashing. We can get to the rebels. Follow me. Um, (laughs) And the colonel runs off. Hero decides to let uh, the Smith go, the Union private, and uh, he lets him go. Notably, uh, there's a bit, there's a, there's some lovely uh, prop negotiation. The 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 Union soldier gives him one of his Union jackets. He has two. We'll get to that later. Um, and so Hero puts on the Union jacket underneath his Confederate jacket and runs after the Colonel. Almost done. Part three. <laughs> we got part three. We are back in Texas again. And this scene is uh, has a return of the chorus. The chorus is back, but this time they are runaway slaves. They are meeting with Homer. Homer is going to try to lead them all to get to run, o- run away. Um... Uh, Homer's in the scene again. Penny is in the scene. Um, and, and, the, uh, part of the early negotiation is whether Penny is going to join the group or not, whether she's going to run away or whether she's going to keep waiting for her hero, um, into the scene as they're all wondering about this runs none other than the missing dog, Odyssey dog, <laughs> <laughs> um, who runs in and tells a grand tale of of his whole journey, how he ran and found Hero at the war, and uh, uh, wonders about whether what sort of news he can tell them. Decides to tell them that Hero is coming back, and uh, Hero returns. Um, there is uh, some more uh, revealing of information. Mostly, uh, we learned that Penny and Homer uh, slept together a number of times while Hero was gone and kind of had some sort of a relationship, though not necessarily a reciprocal loving one. We also learned that Hero uh, got married while he was gone and has returned with his wife. Uh, and, and uh, the 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 the, nego- the 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 negotiations continue to happen as all these revelations come. There is a, uh, a bit of a clash between Homer and Hero, where Hero decide, almost almost kills Homer with a knife. And uh, and by the end of the play, uh, everyone leaves Homer, or I'm sorry, Hero and his dog, uh, and and decides to run away. So they all run off. And the last, the last moment of the play, the final spoiler that I'll give before we jump into true conversation is: we discover that this piece of paper that Hero has brought with him, that he was waiting to read to everyone, that just kind of gets lost in the shuffle of Part Three, is in fact his uh, copying of the Emancipation Proclamation. There we go. <laughs> There's the broadest strokes I could I could figure out how to do for y'all.
1: <laughs> right. So this is really as as you struggled with in the synopsis (laughs) it's really three short plays stitched together. These interconnected stories only one character lives in all three stories on stage Um, but the stories are clearly connected but have beginnings and ends, climaxes moments of revelation moments of reversal of their own. And in all the things that Susan Laurie Parks is playing with in this script, that's one of them, right? I mean, she's playing on these ancient Greek stories in a lot of ways. And uh, ancient Greek plays like the Oristai are really three short interconnected one acts. So that form has lived on in her telling of Father Comes Home from the Wars.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. This, this, like, these these characters, you have touchstones, but uh, each time you're not really sure where your touchstone is for a little while because you think Hero is your touchstone in, in the first scene, and then most of the second scene happens, and Hero hasn't shown up. Um, and and then, then he shows up, and then the scene progresses, and you're like, okay, I am still following Hero. And then the third scene happens, and even more of the scene goes, and you, you haven't met Hero, and when Hero comes back, Hero has a new name. Ulysses,
1: which is, of course, the Roman name for Homer's character Odysseus, Roman name Ulysses. So there's another layering in because a New York Times review of this show called Homer's The Odyssey, the original one, like the template for how Susan Laurie Parks has approached this story. I said earlier in the pre-conversation that this is an adaptive work, and it definitely is. She is playing on this template of the Odyssey. The character hero comes back named Odysseus, but Ulysses, the the Roman translation of the name, Uh, the dog Odyssey. Well, what does Odyssey sound like? (laughs) Odyssey. The use of choruses. This is bringing in forms, structures, plot to some degree, and then creatively reimagining some of these forms in the Civil War South.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's like playing with the genre, but then like she, she, she builds on it a little more. Like no- notably at the end of the Odyssey, uh, Odysseus comes back and his wife has been waiting for him, and he gets there in the nick of time and s- shoots his arrows through the axe, and it's all fine. Um, but that doesn't happen here. This is a much more real kind of gritty uh, ending to the play, where where everyone comes back and everyone's still there, but uh, it ends up being that no one is really happy with each other, <laughs> and and no one is happy with the choices that they made while they were gone and thus cannot remain together and thus have to depart.
1: Right, yeah. And there's so much going on here that you, you're you able to reference back to maybe what you know or what you remember about the Odyssey as a kind of world to live in. And in the very loosest way, it is an adaption of it, right? Because the Odyssey is in some ways a, this poetic, epic telling of a warrior who's come home from this journey to incredible conflict. And she's named the play Father Comes Home from the War. Now, interestingly, that's only really the last part of a three-part play. But in that very loosest way, this story is that story.
0: Yeah and 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 it's it's telling a it's telling this story but telling a different historical moment and so so this historical moment I I feel like landing landing part 2 in the middle of 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 this historical moment with three different parties from kind of Three, the three, the three mo, the three people groups of the Civil War. Um, the you know the the white colonel from the South, at least a perceived Union northerner. Um, uh, for the start of the scene, we believe he is uh, a white northerner. And And then a hero, uh, a black enslaved person from the South. So you have like all three of these these viewpoints uh, bouncing off of each other. But then you you learn part way through that you're not even watching that. You're watching something even more intricate in that Smith, the Union soldier, is is, is, is in fact, an African American. and 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 he's he's, hes he's arguing his own point from that stance, and that changes your perception of him.
1: Right, and you get so much layering. I mean, Susan Laurie Parks is notorious for presenting things in a very complex way, analyzing issues in all of their subtle layers. I mean, a play like Top Dog, Underdog has about... 10 million layers of social and political and relational and psychological commentary and historical commentary and this play is absolutely no different the white colonel in part two one of the more touching moments of the whole play is when he sort of falls apart in heartbreak at the idea that he's going to have to free hero and hero's going to leave them and Susan Laurie Parks doesn't hold any punches with that being a real emotion of that character, at the same time not pulling any punches about how evil it is that he owns another person.
0: Right. Right. There's there's a there's just like a, a ick monologue of his where he's t- trying to tempt Smith into this idea of just own someone someday when you when you're dying you're gonna wish that you had mi- had had the experience of owning someone someday and it's I mean so 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 yeah it's 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 the kind of uh juxtaposition of those two things in the one character that makes him such a uh a, a, a kingpin for that second part um the, the colonel ends up stealing a lot of the spotlight in the second part
1: Right, and the play is, in terms of how the whole, the scope of all three parts lays out, it's it's like part dramatic, theatrical, epic poem, right? I mean, in the same way that the Odyssey is. The play is poetic in its use of language, both ancient Greek pull, you know, not ancient Greek, but. Um, Ancient sounding, for lack of a better phrase, language and very modern contemporary language, combining that into this just poetic look through the whole thing. There's that part of it. It's part like kind of funny. Uh, Frank sort of almost – not it's not slapstick, but it is kind of knock-you-over-the-head humor uh, playing on questions of freedom and of who we are and of hard relationships. There's this comic interpretation of all that. And then at the core of the protagonist's journey is Hero and this question of this – this personal struggle that he's on, this, this internal journey of finding himself in this conflict. There, he has this incredibly moving line in part one in the midst of the debate about whether or not to go to war because his master has promised his freedom. Um, and let me let me correct myself there because I don't, I don't want to use that language. His captor um, has promised his freedom. If he'll go fight for the South, and there's a lot of layering and questioning about that. The whole first part is that question. And he has this great line, I'll be helping out the wrong side that sticks in my throat and makes it hard to breathe. The wrong of it. I mean, a line like that lays bare the deep-rooted struggle that this person has and it's a human it's a human story in that it's about one person on the journey and then it's also a story about a society and it's about the incredible horrific inhuman toll that slavery took on that group of people and, and the legacy of it takes on people today I mean, Hero is a person who is asked to fight against his own freedom to earn his freedom. In that metaphor and in that situation, she has crafted a narrative about how heinous slavery
0: really is. And how complicated it is for Hero to exist within that system, right? Like, he he's he's constantly having to pick between uh how he can experience the world you get it in part 1 with with him choosing to try to uh believe his captor the colonel with the um his offer of freedom so he gives up homer uh, he cuts off homer's foot um and he still doesn't get freedom uh in, in part 2 we 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 uh have him talking to smith about how if i'm free Who's protecting me from the patrol people? So part of what he's wondering about is what it's like for him to have freedom in in a world where such a corrupt system is around him as well and what what freedom means in that corrupt system.
1: And what's interesting about that moment is that Susan Laurie Parks makes an additional – um, level of commentary about the modern world in the stage directions. what she imagines happens in the action. Because as Hero is telling this imagined story of a patroller coming up to him in the street if he were free, she says that his, his gestures, you can't see what I'm doing because you don't have video, but he <laughs> should mimic the, and she puts this in there, the hands up, don't shoot motion from today's world.
0: Yeah, yeah, it has such echoes and and relevance to to our current moment and certainly the moment in in 2014 when she wrote it as well.
1: Right. And and we so there's just all these pieces that come together and Susan Laurie Parks paints this portrait of slavery of the war of modern policing of uh all of it in a way that is uncompromising in how complex it is, refusing to provide easy answers or easy characterizations or stereotypes of anything.
0: Yeah, not not and not wrapping it up with a bow either. The end of the scene again presents hero with the choice whether to run away with Smith or whether to follow the colonel, and he chooses he chooses to let Smith go. He does not continue to to drag Smith into the the rebel camp and turn him in. But he also stays with the colonel. Um, so so it, it's 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 not but it's never a clean ending.
1: The Union jacket. Under his Confederate jacket and actually having been sworn in in some informal way to the Union Army. In this moment at the end of part two, Hero has decided to let Smith go and Smith says, come with me. And mm-hmm. he, he has two jackets on, and this is part of the deception that he plays on the colonel throughout part two. He is a private in that regiment, and he, that means that he's a black person, and he, but he, he's white presenting. And so there's that level of it, and then also the level that he's put on a captain's jacket over his private jacket to keep warm. And that makes him seem as if he's a captain, and he keeps that lie up until Hero confronts him about it. All that to say, he's got two jackets, and he gives Hero one of them and swears him in to the Union Army, uh, and Hero puts that jacket on under his Confederate jacket. I mean, think about—it's almost a little bit hard to grasp in the moment what an incredible metaphor that is. Mm-hmm. To wear the Union jacket under the Confederate jacket. He follows the Colonel on into war on the side of the South, but keeps that Union jacket hidden underneath.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And 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 just kind of all he, he has a line in part three that says, And this union jacket kept me warm. Um and and it's 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 hard to kind of uh even like talk about. That sort of an image and, and evoke the same sort of feeling that it would be when you're watching this like this prop that is is discovered and negotiated throughout part two um, stays with a hero uh, all the way until he's named Ulysses all the way till he's in the end of the play and he reveals it that he's that he's been wearing it the whole time.
1: And part of his inspiration for choosing to change his name, it actually happens off stage between parts two and three, as several fairly major things do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, is a story that Smith tells, or it's not quite a story, it's a description that Smith gives Hero in part two of what General Ulysses S. Grant is like and how he doesn't own any slaves, but he's an incredibly crafty, intelligent leader who's absolutely outsmarting and whooping the Southern Rebel army.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's so many interesting things that we, that we kind of learn about heroes time through, through, uh, through Odyssey, the dog. Through Odyssey. <laughs> and this is, of course, another
1: fairly explicit reference, allusion, drawing on Greek storytelling, um, the Odyssey specifically, other Greek plays in general, because this, Chorus like figure, albeit uh, a dog, and a dog <laughs> that talks like he's hopped up on speed or something, right. um, brings to the group an offstage series of stories in which death occurs offstage and um, life occurs, somebody survives a battle. I mean, this tradition of bringing in news of a viewed battle or a viewed series of important events to the plot is very Greek.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also just the the kind of magic of it, too, is somewhat Greek. Like this is a human playing a dog who comes on doing this and 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 brings on all this information um, and so you you kind of have this moment of separation you, you of 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 reality to some degree and then you reengage and you know, it, i i i was fascinated about like how quickly i reengage like oh okay the dog's talking and everyone's fine with it we're we're fine um, but yeah but, you just you just sort of accept it and move on because <laughs> yeah. frankly there's
1: just nothing else to do
0: <laughs> right <laughs> it's happening if and, you're gonna If
1: you decide that like that's your sticky point, it's too unrealistic, the rest of the play is going to be really tough for you because he talks through (laughs) the rest of the show.
0: Right. So you just say,
1: okay, the dog can talk and move on.
0: Yeah, but you're right. He almost becomes like the chorus leader because there's still a chorus of the runaway slaves on stage, um, and they 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 still behave as a chorus in part three. And yet there there is the I'm I'm forgetting the the Greek word for the, for the leader of the chorus, but um, but that that's kind of the role that Odysseus plays in in the second act to be the the bearer of of nearly tragic news, um, but but ultimately just just uh, complicating news. <laughs>
1: Right. And news of action. I mean, I mean in that way, it, is, it has a very Greek theater sensibility about it. It's like one of those messengers that runs on stage and says, listen, let me tell you a story about uh, what's Creon's son's name? Uh, oh. it starts with an H. This is embarrassing. Um, yeah, the creons. I, I played listen, creon. Let me tell I don't you a story know. about how <laughs> Creon's son found Antigone's body in the tomb, and this is what he did. And then, from off stage, you see Creon entering, carrying the body, and the play moves on. But and what that messenger describes is part of the story, but the storytelling of it isn't in dramatic action on stage.
0: Right, right, you're kind of warmed up to the, the the tragedy so that you can experience it more more uh, more honestly, perhaps, or and of course, or get ready for it.
1: One of the sort of serio comic things about that dog's storytelling, Odyssey's storytelling, is that we have no idea how the story's gonna end. <laughs> Yeah, the, the characters keep trying because ultimately they're asking the dog, "Did Hero survive or not?" We know that the Colonel, his captor, did not did not survive. That's clear from the beginning of part three. But the question is, did Hero survive or not? And basically, everybody thinks Hero's dead and is just wanting the dog to confirm that. So the dog tells this story, but he tells it from like the very beginning. Right. from like more than a year ago when the colonel was first deciding to go to war and they're all like let's move along with the story and he's like I'm getting there I'm getting there right. and it takes pages and pages of storytelling for him to finally 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 reveal that no Hiro did survive
0: oh and he's right over there right <laughs> yeah and it's all like it's really complex there's a bunch of like asides that you just imagine people like hanging their heads as he's like talking about something particular there's some wordplay that makes it sound like his like last line is that hero is dead but he actually means that the colonel is dead and so it's 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 just like these all these characters are waiting with bated breath cuz they're wondering whether penny is going to join them to to run away or not so it's it's this it's this kind of really comedic and yet kind of tense scene as he's slowly unwrapping the story of Hero.
1: Right, and actually they all believe Hero's dead because the the mistress of the house received a letter that the colonel was dead and she told Penny Hero's dead as well. So they all think he's dead and Penny's actually decided to run away because she's not waiting at home for Hero anymore. And then Odyssey comes along and they're all trying to get him to just confirm what they Already to believe. And I just want to read for you the final few lines of the dog's story, just to emphasize how wonderful the comic writing in that moment is. So, this is after pages of story, pages of story told in this sort of <laughs> frantic. I suppose she's just trying to achieve the effect of like, what would it be like if a dog told a story? But it's, it feels very frantic and disjointed storytelling. And he finally gets to this. Um, Penny says, and my hero left dead on the field of battle for the birds to eat out his eyes. Homer says, hero's dead. God rest him. And the Odyssey dog, old hero? No. He'll be home directly. And Penny (laughs) says, home directly? And that's the end of that story. It's such a wonderful, like for all the equivocating and the story and all the words, he finally comes to the point and he says, no, he'll be home in like two minutes. He's right over there.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. And then when when he comes home, it's so like... There's, 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 there's climax, but there's anti-climax too. It was, it's a strange end to the play, right? Like everything is, is, is has come to a head. He's home. Um, but we slowly, uh, much like the dog story suss out more and more details from each of the characters about where they're actually at about w- with him coming home and, and with each other.
1: Well, and, and of course, because she's pulling from it, in the same way that Odysseus coming home in the Odyssey, his coming home is complicated and um, in some ways spoiled by the revelation of what happened to him on the journey. Ulysses, who's the new name for Homer, or for hero, I mean, comes home and his homecoming where he's finally supposed to be with the woman that's been waiting at home for him all these years. And he's finally going to make right the wrong that he did to Homer by chopping off his foot, by bringing home a foot for him. And his dog is finally there and he's going to, and all this (laughs) stuff, he's finally coming home. And that the rug is pulled out from under that by the revelation of what happened over the course of the journey. uh, Namely (laughs) that he's bringing home a wife.
0: Right. Right. He's bringing home a wife and he's uh, and he's bringing home the news of the Emancipation Proclamation. But does like, get but, lost in the shuffle a little bit. Just a little intentionally, bit. Intentionally. Intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. So so there's just there's just so much and so much at cross purposes. And each of these characters uh, like the 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 moment where Homer has professed to having forgiven Hero. Um, in, in part three and, and the moment where they, they kind of come to a clash a a pretty physical clash, um, uh, where, where hero draws his, his weapon at, at, at him and charges him, um, kind of, kind of like. That feels in some ways like the climax of the play for me. Um, this, this moment where it's all come to a head and then we have a very short kind of fallout of that physical action between these two as everyone goes their separate ways or stays their separate ways. And, and uh, the, the, the world is kind of left, or, or at least Hero is, is left by all the other characters.
1: There's an incredible... I mean, just breathtaking line here in part three. After Ulysses, old hero, has revealed that he has not come home to be with Penny finally. She's been waiting for him. Um, that he's bringing home a wife and possibly a child by that wife, although it's a little bit muddy what, what the deal with all that is. Um, the chorus is reflecting on this, and Penny has gone into the house to make up the marriage bed for Ulysses and yeah. his new bride. Painful, incredible moment. And the chorus is reflecting on everything that, that's happening. And uh, this is what they say. Inside, Penny makes up the marriage bed. And in doing so, she takes her place in the long line of the wronged. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. That is incredible, moving, powerful language. In doing so, she takes her place in the long line of the wrong. And, and it, for some reason, the way that that line is framed, I immediately think about Fences, where hmm. Troy's wife is asked to care for the child that he's had by another woman. And we talked when we were talking about Fences about how incredibly moving that scene is, both because of what she's asked to do, the incomparable, you know, this just devastating, tragic situation where there's no good outs and human generosity has to overwhelm human raw. But I can just imagine this chorus standing there and when she agrees to raise the child, that chorus saying... In doing so, she takes her place in the long line of the wronged.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. The chorus chorus in this play and in in any well-executed play with a chorus in it, um, but, but this one in particular... Adds so much of that weight, so much of that richness. There's there's song throughout this play as well, that the chorus, uh, or the chorus or a musician, but any musician on stage kind of becomes one with the chorus in 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 that form. The chorus adds so much of that that mood, that weight, those hard hitting lines, that those worldview setting lines. Um, and and I'm I, I'm always a huge fan of the chorus, and and that was that, that was. Uh, not excluded in this play. this the, the, their, their use both in the first scene to kind of drive the excitement, but then in the last scene to, to land the gravity is incredible.
1: Well, let's talk about why there's not a chorus then in part two. There's such an explicit chorus, literally named the chorus, uh, a right. chorus of less than desirable slaves, I believe, in part one, and the chorus of runaway slaves in part three, as well as chorus-like storytelling methods like Odd to Dog. We get those in part one and three, but part two is such a distinctly different world in terms of the theatrical storytelling. There is no musician in part two. The music is sung by characters in the story. There's no community to witness the events that occur.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I, I wonder... I wonder if this is a, a riff on on Greek style theater again, because often the middle scene or a second scene of of uh of Greek style theater is a pretty char- characters arguing their viewpoint scene, and the chorus is kind of watching either uh, uh Creon or Oedipus talking to someone else about about their worldview. So I wonder if it's a little bit of a nod to that, um, but also. Uh, It does, it does, there's so much happening in part two, um, and it's so personal, and a lot of it is secretive, too, like, a lot of operation within part two, uh, is dependent upon one character or other not being there as the other characters talk about them, um, or about, yeah, talk, sometimes it's just as meaningful when, when a character is there and, like, the colonel is talking to Smith about Hero, but, um, but I think that's some of the dynamic that is, that is played with there, and, and still manages to hit that hard-hitting weight even though the chorus isn't there.
1: And it emphasizes, too, the isolation that hero experiences having gone off to war, right? He's not in these communities of people around him anymore. He's alone, actually, in part two, literally lost in the southern wilderness. Another nod, of course, to uh, Odysseus's travels being lost as part of his journey. And yeah. he's lost alone with... Um, this slave captor that uh, both treats him with just horrifying squeamish casualty. There's this whole bit where they talk about how much Hero is worth, and he tries to Yum. make a game out of it, and there's that part of it, and then you get these sort of touching odes to how amazing Hero is. So you you get this complicated, sort of unstable human that he's right. isolated alone in the wilderness with, and uh, when then in part three, you look back and you go, why'd you make all those bad decisions, uh, Ulysses, <laughs> Hero? And you go, well... Uh, you, because we go along with him for that part of the journey, we have some knowledge that the characters in part three don't have.
0: So, so we're running, we're, we're, we're coming up towards the end of our time. We should talk just a little bit about uh, some of her, her, her formatting in this place. Susan Laurie Parks always uses interesting formatting and, and, and one of the interesting things in this one is his whole lines without lines in them.
1: Yeah. It's this theatrical device that she calls a spell. Um, I love it. She's used it throughout a whole bunch of her work, and I think we talked some about it when we talked about Top Dog Underdog. Mm-hmm. And what I love, I'd love to hear what you think about it, Jackson. What I love about it is that as a director and a playwright, sometimes I get a little bit frustrated with the how complicated drama is because playwrights often write words, you know, dialogue, and drama is action in a lot of ways more than dialogue. And so... I love that Susan Laurie Parks has written these sections where there is no dialogue, but there is action. There is forward-moving communication, nonverbal communication, moments that occur, things that change in the characters' relationships and journeys that don't need any words, that don't require anybody to say anything out loud.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think that the, the, the making room in the script for, for the playwright to say, I have a vision of you doing physical storytelling here, (laughs) that there there should be physical storytelling in this moment, or there should be a, a dramatic pause in other, in other scenarios. And it should be roughly this long by, by kind of rotating characters who have this silence or this spell, um, but it also is – the, the making of room for that is very different than writing pause in italics or something like that. It, 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 it demands something be filled into well, that space.
1: And, and as a director, uh, you're constantly working with actors to encourage them on the, the idea that a pause is not the cessation of action. Just because there is no dialogue does not mean the action, the engagement, the scene doesn't stop moving forward because of playwright's written pause. And Mm -hmm. frankly, production teams are a little bit at odds with playwrights who write pause into their scripts because pause is a word that communicates cessation, stopping, pausing. And that's not what the playwrights mean, of course, but it does at, a, at face value. If you're an actor and you see pause, you think, stop. But things happen without dialogue. And so I love that she says, I'm not going to use pause for this moment. I'm going to write a, a device that communicates that something is happening here. It's just that nobody talks.
0: Right, and I think I, one of the, the the striking moment for that in my head is the is in part three during the knife fight. Penny stops the fight, essentially, but there's almost no lines around which Penny stops the fight. There are, however, um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Um, different back and forths of character names. So, so you, and, and they're specific often Penny. So, so Penny is doing something in this scene that is stopping Ulysses from continuing to try to kill Homer. Um, but it's not laid out. It's, it's, it's space is given to it in the script, but it's not prescribed. Right, and so
1: it's also not like she wrote this in elaborate stage direction, Penny raises her fist and as she brings it down, she realizes the fault in his actions and crumples under the weight of his own human emotion. I mean, that's what a lot (laughs) of those playwrights in like the 50s, the 40s, Miller, O'Neill, Williams, right? They did that, and they they did that for a very specific reason. They were working for a reading audience in a lot of ways that didn't get to see their shows. It's a different time. Theater is a But I love that the production team, the director and the actors and the the artists that are working to bring the text to life get to decide what happens in those moments.
0: And even the reader, something fascinating as the reader that happens is I was I was suspensefully wondering whether or not Hero like hit Homer with his knife. Because there isn't a really specific stage direction, I was like, I, I had to keep reading to figure out. Oh no, Homer is alive! <laughs> so I, I, as the reader, was welcomed into the tension of the moment as well because of that th- that design of of the of the dialogue.
1: There's so much to love about Susan Laurie Parks. The way she writes her shows, the incredible language and layered, complex themes, the entrancing soul-wrenching, powerful characters that she brings to life. She's just incredible.
0: I I agree. And we could continue talking and talking, but alas, we are out of time. So we would love to keep having this conversation on and on with you all out there in the social media world. If you have read Father Comes Home from the Wars or seen it or been a part of a production, we'd love to keep talking about this play with you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScript Podcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScript Podcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those platforms or sites, and we'd love to keep talking about this play with you
1: absolutely if you want to recommend this podcast to other folks which we would love you can send them to podbean where we're hosted to google play apple Podcasts, or spotify where they can find us as well if you're connected with us on facebook a link to the new episode is posted every monday as it comes out
0: so until next week when we're talking about another
1: play i am jackson Nikolai. i am jacob man christensen thanks for joining us for no script the podcast we'll see you.